Okay, thanks, Peter. <clears throat> I may or may not have told you this story, uh, but in the summer of 2007, I popped out to the shops with my now father-in-law. I was sweaty with nerves, but also excited because I was planning on proposing to Nicola and this was my chance to seek his blessing. So I said, William, I'd like to marry your daughter. Thankfully, as soon as I said it, he was delighted and he, and he beamed with a great big smile and he said, wonderful, you have our full support and blessing. It was easier than I thought. I was relieved. That was until we walked back into the house with both of our families in attendance, my immediate family and Nicholas and some other friends, my father-in-law strode into the room and he said, hello everyone, I have an announcement to make. Jake and Nicola are engaged. The room fell absolutely silent. Why? Because it was news to everyone, including Nicola. <laughs> All she could say was, but he hasn't asked me yet. Now, my father-in-law doesn't mind me telling that story because he knows I've always valued his enthusiastic support and love, and he was just so excited. But from my perspective, at least, he badly misread the signs and the reason for our conversation. During our chat, I was trying to say one thing, and, and he thought I was saying another. Thankfully, it didn't make too much difference in the end, although Nicola was a little bit less surprised when I did get the chance to pop the question. In other situations, misreading the signs can have far more drastic consequences. Like misreading the signs of a, of a great storm coming. For thousands of years, in fact, people have been using some variation of, of, uh, of this rhyme to forecast the weather. You probably know it, red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. In fact, Jesus himself refers to that uh, sign, that particular weather phenomenon in Matthew 16. Now, it's unlikely that a red sky in the morning here in Banbury will result in a cyclone developing. But if you were a fisherman off the coast of Mexico on the East Pacific Ocean, a red sky in the morning could be a sign of a significant storm coming your way. For instance, in 2015, Hurricane Patricia swept through the region and measuring winds of uh, up to 215 miles per hour. Now, as we've seen in previous weeks, John's Gospel is full of signs. They play a significant and central role in Jesus' ministry as recorded in this book. In fact, the first half of the Gospel is commonly known as the Book of Signs. There is Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Jesus healing a Roman official son. Jesus healing a man with a lifelong illness on the Sabbath. Jesus feeding a crowd of 5,000 people. And there are more signs to come. Each of those signs uh, is significant. And each of those signs is designed to do at least three things. First, to bear witness to who Jesus is the divine son who's come into the world. Second, to display what life is like in the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. There are signs of redemption, of restoration. And third, crucially, 
the signs call for a response of faith um, in those who see and hear about them. In that sense, as Augustine says, they're, they're, the signs are a kind of language. They speak. However, as we'll see in John 6 now, encountering those signs can be both a blessing and a curse. And not just to those who experienced them at the time, but for us today too. Rightly received and understood, the signs can deepen and enliven our faith in Jesus Christ. Yet for those who misread them, they'll act more as a storm warning, a kind of uh, warning than a word of comfort, like a red sky in the morning. The message today comes in two halves. The first part of the message is this. Don't trust your guts. Don't trust your guts. Now, our passage today opens with the same crowd who'd enjoyed that meal on the mountainside, seeking out Jesus once again. And eventually they find him. And they seem excited, if a little confused, at the sight of Jesus. Verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? But Jesus ignores their question and immediately challenges their motives. Verse 26, very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. In other words, Jesus says, you're just being led by your guts. You just want another lunch. It's a challenging remark because in the ancient world, the gut or the stomach was seen as the center of our desires and our passions. In fact, as, as Tor Moyer would probably be able to tell you, being ruled by your stomach was synonymous in Greco-Roman literature with being a fool. Jesus is calling out the shallowness of their pursuit of him. The question is not so much a humble inquiry as a way in for hungry scavengers to fill their stomachs once again. They're only working, says Jesus in verse 27, for food that spoils, not for food that endures to eternal life, which only Jesus can give them. Sure, they experienced and delighted in Jesus' miraculous provision, but they can't seem to see beyond the immediate effect of that bread and fish. They can't see and perceive what lies behind it, of what the sign is signifying, what it signifies about the one who gives it, the one who can provide out of nothing, who lovingly and abundantly gives out of his good pleasure. Now we might think, how foolish. How could they not get it? How could they not see beyond the immediate and the material? How blind and shallow and ungrateful. That is until we stop and think about it for a moment and perhaps realize the ways in which we do the very same thing. Like the crowd, are we not also naturally inclined to follow our guts? Driven by our gut instincts, can we not also seek to consume what we crave most in the here and now? For example, can you, like me, think of times when you've turned to God for temporal favors? Can you recall occasions when you've sought satisfaction in created goods without seeing the hand behind, uh, behind them that gives them? Can you think of times 
when you've even consumed a, a means of God's grace, perhaps even like reading the Bible, reading scripture, or coming to church, but you've stopped short at enjoying their intended end. It can be exciting, for example, getting a handle of the scriptures, growing in knowledge of them, reading them well, and discovering connections and how they all fit together. Bible studies can be a buzzing experience. Likewise, church can function as a wonderful community and a haven for Christians amidst the storms of the world outside. Now, please don't mishear me. Obviously, those are both wonderful gifts. We may enjoy and delight in partaking in them, as I hope we all do. But you know, it is even possible to mistreat the scriptures and to mistreat the church by making them into ends in themselves. Ultimately, those gifts are made for more than our personal consumption and satisfaction. God gifts us with the scriptures for us to encounter him the living and triune God. The purpose of God's word is to bring us to God, to render Christ's presence to us in whom we are transformed by the Holy Spirit. And God gives us with the church, the community of faith, for us to worship him together as his people. It's very easy to think about the church in relation to our activities, the things we do, discipleship, evangelism, caring for one another, all wonderful things. But you know, none of them are actually ends in themselves. There's only one activity in the church which is an end in itself, and that's the worship of God. As we saw with the woman at the well in chapter 4, that's the goal and the end purpose of the Christian life. So can you see how we too can pursue that which is temporary and only a sign or a means to something else without being led to the one being signified by them. Do not work for the food that spoils. Don't trust your guts, your natural cravings for visible, temporary things. Instead, trust in Jesus, the source and the substance of life. Jesus is the source of life. Verse 27, do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. I'm sure the bread and the fish tasted great and provided nourishment to the people. And the crowd are surely right to recognize that Jesus is someone special who's able uh, to give them what they, can't, what they cannot give themselves. He has the power to do that. But Jesus is not like a vending machine. If you push the right buttons, you get fed. Jesus provided the abundance of bread and fish to demonstrate something far, far greater. The sign bears witness to the fact that he is the giver, the one who says in Isaiah 55, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Without money and without cost, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. 
He is the promised Messiah, the divine Son, who's come into the world to give life. Just as the people who wandered in the wilderness, receiving God's provision of water and manna, so Jesus says, come to me for water that forever quenches your thirst. Water that springs up to eternal life, as Jesus told that woman at the well. Come to me for food that never goes off. Food that endures to eternal life. Moses may have received the word about the manna, but it wasn't him who provided it. On the other hand, those five loaves of barley were for Jesus like seeds, says Augustine, multiplied by the one who made the earth. Jesus is the source of life, the eternal life giver. Jesus is also the substance of life. It's an interesting question that people ask him in verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires? In effect, the crowd are asking, what do we need to do to eat of this eternal bread that you're speaking of? Again, they're thinking in, in terms of the tangible, the immediate. They want something graspable, something practical to do. But Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Notice, not works, work. He says there's only one requirement to gain life, belief. That is trust, faith. Not trust in self, not in your background or position or standing before others or any works that we can perform. Just belief in Jesus Christ. By the way, that is both the easiest thing and the hardest thing in the world. It's easy because eternal life is not at all dependent on us. The object of our faith, of our trust, our belief, is Jesus Christ, the life and light of all mankind. He is the glory of the one and only Son who has come from the Father full of grace and truth. We cannot go hungry in him because he possesses life in himself. And he freely offers that life to us with no merit or cost required on our part. That said, believing in Jesus Christ is also hard because it means receiving Christ, receiving him as savior, receiving him as our mediator and receiving him as our Lord. John explained that right at the beginning of this gospel. You might remember from John chapter 1, verse 11. John says, Jesus came to that which is, was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Belief is about receiving Jesus. And belief is not just a one-time confession either. It's a lifelong turning to Christ. But you know what? It may be the hardest thing, but what reason is there not to? I don't know about you, but I get incredibly frustrated by those um, automated um, authentication tests on the internet where I need to prove that I'm a human. Um, even after providing my username, my password, 
probably a second key, second stage authentication with an extra pin on my phone and everything, um, another thing pops up that looks like this. Now, I'm pretty sure that if you can decipher that, you are positively inhuman. Because I can't, for the life of me, read what that says. At other times, the traffic light thing pops up, which always stresses me out, because does the pole count as a traffic light? Now, it's extraordinary that even after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd want another sign to authenticate Jesus' claims. What more could they want? But Jesus' response is amazingly kind. Although he doesn't repeat the feeding of the 5,000, he doesn't actually deny their request. Instead, he effectively says, you know, that sign that you're asking for, that authenticating sign, has already been performed. The authenticating sign from God is standing right in front of you. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. The bread of God, the bread that comes from heaven, the bread of life is in your midst. He is here and available to you. Again, as Augustine says, if you believe, if you receive Christ on his terms, not ours, you have eaten of it. Now, next week, we will explore more of what that means for, for us to feast on that bread and, and what that means for our Christian lives. But for now, let's finish by noting some of the things that Jesus promises he will and will not do when we believe in and receive in him, receive him by faith. First, Jesus says he will provide what we need to really live. Jesus is not the bread of mere existence. He is the bread of life. In our grow groups this week, we spoke about languishing. As one New York Times article puts it, languishing is, that, is the name for the blah feeling that we all have. It's the sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as though you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through, fog, through a foggy windshield. And it's the dominant emotion of 2020 and 2021. Life in Jesus Christ is not about mere survival. It's not about coping and languishing or grinning and bear things until we get to heaven. Knowing Jesus is our very calling and purpose in life. To know him is to know life in all its fullness, to know love like no other, to know joy found in nowhere else, to know peace and security in our forgiveness, transformation by the Holy Spirit. And as we saw in John 5 the other week, it is to experience wholeness. Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Second, Jesus says that he will draw all those who, who are called uh, to, to him by God's grace. He says, all those the Father gives to me will come to me. There is no danger of Jesus missing anyone out. 
our lives of faith and, you know, the, life, the faith of others around us are not dependent on our strength and our performance. However weak and unworthy we feel, Jesus will not fail to recognize those given to him. He welcomes us when we're drawn to him. And by the way, again, that's not just a one-time thing when we come to faith. Jesus is not like the party host who welcomes you at the door and then doesn't chat to you for the rest of the evening. He continually welcomes and ministers to his own. Third, Jesus says that he will not lose those given to him. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. You may be feeling like you're just hanging on as a Christian at the moment. Perhaps you're worried that you're losing grip of him. We all go through moments of, of that in the Christian life, of, of, of doubt and uncertainty, and some perhaps more than others. If you're in that place right now, just know that your security as a child of God depends entirely, wholly, completely on the faithfulness and power of Christ. Just as I hold my uh, little Jess's hand when she's running alongside me, my grip on her is secure. She won't fall as long as I've got her. Christ's grip on us, not ours on him, is what ultimately will keep us standing. And finally, Jesus says that he will ensure our future. Verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at that last day. In the church's calendar, you may or may not know this, it's still actually the Easter season, the time of celebrating the resurrection. But actually, there's a double resurrection. Not just the first resurrection of Christ in vindication and victory over sin and death. And spiritually speaking, we already share in that where our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We also celebrate and anticipate a second resurrection to come. When Christ will come and his people shall be raised up physically, fully, finally, with him for life in the presence of God in which we will forever worship and enjoy him. So take confidence in all those things that Christ says he will and will not do. And may they continue to minister um, to you today and always. Let's pray. I'm going to use a, a prayer of thanksgiving during the Easter season, which um, is on the screen. Blessed are you, Lord God of our salvation. To you be praise and glory forever. As once you ransomed your people from Egypt and led them to freedom in the promised land, so now you have delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your risen Son. May we, the first fruits of your new creation, Rejoice in this new day that you have made and praise you for your mighty acts. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed be God forever.